Let's read our text for the morning, which is 1 Corinthians 4, 7 to 16. And this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And I'm going to read it something like I think he wrote it, all right? Or if he had been reading it, how he would have sounded, because it's important, particularly in this text. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from now on, (laughs) we're going to stand when we read Scripture. So stand up. All right. Show honor to God, not to, to God and his word. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You're already filled. You have become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. When we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. And therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we remember what's going on in the book of Corinth, and what's going on in the book of Corinth is what goes on in every family, every marriage, every church, every gathering of people. There arises a reasoning among them as to which of them is the greatest. You remember it happened in the upper room right before Jesus was crucified, in the middle of the week of passion. There they are in the upper room, striving amongst themselves as to which of them is the greatest. And that's me. And I want you to know, I am the greatest. And you say, no, you're not, I am. And I say, oh, look who has the mic. And you say, well, that's just because I pay your salary. What if I stop paying your salary? And I say, I'll still preach. And you say, I don't have to listen. Now, it's obvious when I talk about myself and I say, I'm the greatest, everybody's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But what about you? You've got a club foot. You're the greatest. And you say, well, no, a club foot is embarrassing. I say, no, no, no. 
The people that have weaknesses take every bit as much pride and are just as divisive using their weaknesses as the strong ones are using their strength. Every single one of us is precious about his or her own weakness or strength and uses it to get a leg up on everybody else. That's who we are. Well, my mama didn't love me. you imagine how oppressive that is in America today? Everybody in the world is having to tread lightly around those people whose mama didn't love them, whose daddy abandoned them. (laughs) You know, we're all victims. We're a nation of victims. And so today, actually, the strong man with convictions is the really oppressed man. (laughs) You realize this? He's the one everybody hates. He's so arrogant. No, I'm just under authority. That's all. <laughs> it's quite freeing to be under authority. Any of you women discovered that yet? You should before you die. That's a, sort of a joke. <laughs> okay, so. There arises a striving amongst them as to which of them is the greatest. And the Apostle Paul begins this by saying what? He begins it by saying, who regards you as superior? So what we know is in that church, there were those who thought they were superior to others. But really, that's not accurate. What we know was that that entire church was filled with people who thought they were superior to everyone else. And some used their weakness to be superior over the strong ones. And the strong ones used their strength to be superior over the weakness. And all of them had in front of them, so that they could play a little shell game, they had in front of them their particular preachers and teachers and Titus II women that they felt had greater spiritual gifts so that they could stand behind them and be very obsequious to their wonderful leaders, you know. And and so everybody would focus on the leaders and not on them, but then they'd say, that's my champion. You know, you think of Israel and the Philistines. You, You got Goliath and you have David, right? That's what was going on in this church. And so when the apostle Paul says, you're superior, right? Who regards you as superior? He then says, what do you have that you did not receive? And so what we know is that he's constantly switching back and forth between the people of the church and the leaders of the church. And what he's doing here is addressing the leadership because the leadership were the ones that had the gifts that caused the people to be able to get a leg up on each other. In other words, they weren't fighting themselves over, you know, I have a nice car, and you have a nice guitar, and I keep my car clean, and you play your guitar well. But with them, it was my preacher, my elder, my teacher, my Titus II woman has the gift of discernment and believes in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this one over here, well, I'm a counselor, and I have the gift of empathy. And over here, well, I'm the proclaimer and I have the gift of discernment. Right? In other words, it's the spiritual gifts that are being used to get a leg up on each other in this church. And all the people have a champion, so it can't be about them. It's it's about their leader, you know? And that makes it easier for them to fight against each other. Do you understand? Because it's the leader, you know, the honorable leader. We have one pastor who, somebody in our church was just so committed to that pastor. And that person was 
uh, cherishing in their heart disdain and probably even hatred for another pastor. And of course, you can't guess which that pastor was, right? (laughs) And probably didn't have as much hatred or disdain for the third pastor. And then the pastor that person was just so, so committed to rebuked them. All of a sudden, guess what? That hatred just moved right on over to that pastor. And all of a sudden, all three pastors were just dead in the water. And this is what we do as people. We always have this leader, that leader, this parent, that parent. You know, this friend and that friend. You get three women together, you've got problems. (laughs) Two women can handle it, but three, it's hopeless, right? Well, at least there's some older women that are honest here. Okay, so in the church, in Corinth, this is what's going on. And they're all divided. They're all nasty. And they're all doing it through their leaders. So it can look like it's a very spiritual division. And, of course, it's about gifts. And so the Apostle Paul says what? He says, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? In other words... The man that uses his club foot to get a leg up on other people, his weakness, all right, he got that treasure from God. He didn't receive it. I mean, he didn't come up with it on his own. I think I'm going to have a club foot. That was a gift from God. All right? And the man that has the wonderful voice like Ben, right? Well, Ben's worked at it, but it's a gift from God, you know? You think of, uh, what's his face, Ted Williams, right? The golden voice, right? Where did the voice come from? He was very clear on his sign. It's a gift from God, right? What do you have that isn't a gift from God? Nothing. So then how come you're proud about it? And so here these leaders are, and they know very well what the people are doing. They, you know, they might act coy about it. They might act as if they don't really know. I mean, no, no, no. There's somebody that likes me better than Dave Corral? No, no. Well, I didn't know that. Shame on you. (laughs) No, we know what's going on behind us. (laughs) We're not dumb. And so every single one of them, as the people under them were saying, he's so discerning. Right? He's so empathetic. He's so manly. Right? They all know what's going on, and they're taking pride, but they let the people do the talking. You know, They have good manners. And Paul says, dude, you know, what do you have that isn't a gift? Well, who gives gifts? God does. In other words, every single thing you have comes from God. Your club foot comes from God. Your loud, beautiful voice comes from God. Your manly shoulders come from God. Your hair comes from God. Your, your playing technique comes from God. Your money comes from God. Your money comes from God. And you go, oh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, the hair, okay? Although I do use good shampoo. But money, that's a function of my hard work. I say, okay. So in other words, the money's yours, Right? Well, I'm not saying it's not mine. I mean, I do give money to God, but I mean, I worked hard for that money. I say, okay, so in other words, the money's yours. You say, well, no, but I work for it. And I say, okay, so 
who does the work belong to, you or God? Well, I'm the one that worked. I say, okay, so the money and the work belong to you. Who wakes you up in the morning so that you work? Who gives you the desire to work when you wake up in the morning? Well, I wake up in the morning because I set the alarm clock. Okay, who gave you an alarm clock? Well, I bought the alarm clock with the money I get from the work. I go, okay, so the alarm clock, the desire to get up in the morning, the desire to work, the hard work, the money it produces, that's all yours. Well, (laughs) who gave you a nation where you can actually earn money working? There are many nations where you can't. Well, I was born here. My parents live here. I'm an American. So who gave you being an American? Well, I got that from my parents. Well, who gave it to your parents? Well, their ancestors worked hard here. So in other words, the nation, the ability to earn money, the alarm clock, the work ethic. At what point are you going to say that it's a gift? At what point? I've told you, and I'm going to tell you again, that if you have problems with money, find Jonathan Edwards' sermons, or sermon on the duty of giving to the poor. I don't remember the exact title of it. Because in there, he takes you through all the reasons, all the squirrely reasons we come up with for refusing to give to the poor. And then he hits the reason, which is, if I give money to the poor, they'll squander it because they're not good stewards, and I am a good steward. And so I should hold on to the money and not just squander it by giving it to people that aren't good stewards. And Edwards says, who made you a good steward? And of course, the answer is God. And then he says, okay, so if God made you a good steward so that you have money, why shouldn't your brother benefit from that gift of good stewardship that God's given to you? (laughs) Once we begin to realize that discernment, that our voices, that our club foot, that our wealth, that our work ethic, that the alarm clock, once we begin to realize that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, Father, falling down from the Father of the heavenly lights, once we begin to see with eyes that see that every single thing is from God, okay, then all of a sudden we're generous. And all of a sudden it's not about getting a leg up on anybody else, it's about sharing. Do you understand this? And so the Apostle Paul starts out this rebuke by pointing out to those who think they're better than others that anything they think causes them to be better than others is a gift from God. At the end of his life, my father-in-law was asked by Christianity Today what he was most proud of in his life. You remember this? I think it was one of his his strokes of genius in his life. And he thought about it a second, and then he was very proud to tell us, the family, what his response was. He looked at them and he said, well, he said, some people have told me that I'm very humble, and that makes me proud. (laughs) Now, get your brain around that one. And that's the way we should be. We should realize that if we're humble, what? That's a gift from God. And you say, well, no, actually, the humility that I have is not a gift of God because it's the product of having been been found out in my sin. 
And so that can't be from God. That's a result of my own sin. And I say, well, (laughs) how about being found out in your sin? Isn't that a gift of God? (laughs) Do you think God is surprised by our sin? Has it ever occurred to you that God designs the sins that you need? And you say, are you making God the author of sin? And I'm saying, well, no, God is not the author of sin. But do you really think that hurricanes and that... Let me ask you this. Do you think that God was shocked to see what happened to King David? Everything that we have is a gift from God. Absolutely everything. And God is not the author of sin. He's not the author of evil. And if you're not asking the question whether God is the author of sin and the author of evil, you haven't begun to think biblically. And you say, well, are you telling me to think that? No, I'm saying you should be thinking thoughts that cause you to ask the question. I mean, it comes up in the Institutes constantly that Calvin wrote. Just constantly. And then you say to yourself, God is not the author of sin. All right? Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And then we go into a section that's just completely ironic and completely satirical and completely sarcastic. Don't ever allow anybody to tell you that sarcasm is unspiritual. It is extremely spiritual. Because much of our lives, we need men and women who will come to us and shame us. And shaming is at the center of the obligations of a father with his children. (laughs) Did you hear that? Shaming is at the center of the obligations of a father towards his children. If you have been raised in a home where your father didn't shame you, your father is a failure. Because what you're going to see Paul doing right now is shaming the Corinthians. Trust me in this, and I'll I'll answer your objections in a few minutes. What the Apostle Paul begins to do now is to shame the Corinthians. Now, how does he shame them? Well, look at what he says. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings. (laughs) Filled. Rich kings. Fat rich kings. Corinthians are fat rich kings. That's how they see themselves. All he's doing is saying back to them what they're saying to everybody. We are full. We are rich. We are kings. What a perfect description of the church in America. We will come to you. And give of the of the beneficence that God has given to us. Let us come to you. (laughs) We are full, we are rich, we are kings. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Yep, 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 yep. So the Corinthians were full, they were rich, and they were kings. And then you've got that little statement at the end. (laughs) 
<laughs> a little statement that you don't ever want to hear without us. And who's the us? It's the Apostle Paul. Who is the us? The us is who? Who is the us? It's the Apostle Paul. Do you want to become full and rich and a king without the Apostle Paul? (laughs) I don't think so. Do you get it? It's a joke. It's a joke. You have become full, you have become rich, you have become kings. And where's the Apostle Paul? Here I am, my train is chugging. Look at me, I'm full, I'm rich, I'm a king. Okay, there I am. And back in the way car, what you know as a caboose. You have become full. You have become rich. You have become kings without us. And there he is, the Apostle Paul. And I hope by now, after going through Galatians and now Corinthians, I hope you love that man like I do. one of the most damning things about our age, how we despise the Apostle Paul. And man, what a lovable man. You become full, you become rich, you become kings. What about me? I'm back here. I gave you birth. I'm your daddy. I love you. What about me? You're full, you're rich, you're kings. What about me? And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. Yikes. Listen, that's a that's a father. <laughs> yeah, I wish, you, I wish you were a king because then I could ride in the limo with you. I wish you were the president so that I could be at the Oval Office with you. Utter disdain and sarcasm here. You see it? Everybody see it? There's no question about it. <laughs> and right now, you are, because you have a good father, you are what? fully embarrassed because you realize that you're on a train and that it's feeding you well and it's headed in the right direction and there's nothing to worry about and you're tipped back in the chair and the person's coming into your compartment serving you tea and coffee and and the climate's controlled and and pretty soon it's going to be, you know, uh, Paddington Station, you know. And the Apostle Paul, when the train started, he had his belt caught in the coupler of the way car. And the entire trip, that man's body has been being dragged along the ties and all of the gravel. And that man is absolutely bleeding. 
And the funny thing is, he's back there, bloody, naked, being dragged. And he is the engine that is causing you to move. As a matter of fact, his blood and his humiliation and his nakedness and his suffering are exactly what has moved you to Paddington Station. If he wasn't back there suffering for you, you wouldn't have moved. You go, wait a second, it's Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. And I say, you know, all through history, Jesus has been pleased to use shepherds. Why do you think at the end of this section he refers to him as a father? That he's their dad. And the reason? Because he gave birth to them. Because they are the fruit of his labor. They are children of his ministry. That's why he calls himself a father at the end. He gave birth to them. You go, wait, wait, wait. That can't possibly be what scripture says. Jesus alone. Grace alone. No man. I don't need any man. Yeah, that's because you don't need any authority. You refuse to submit to authority. And so you won't see what's as plain as the nose on the end of your face, which is the Apostle Paul in the next verses is describing what it is to give birth to souls who come to Christ and are sanctified and are protected until they reach heaven. And it's the most bloody, awful, messy work that there is on the face of the earth. It even is messier than a woman in a delivery room. Don't romanticize childbirth. It's just a tiny picture of the process of being born again by the Spirit of God. That's the reason it's given to us. You want to know why I'm always talking about women and their dignity and glory? Because if we despise women giving birth, if we despise womanhood, we despise being born again. Because being born again is the archetype that is pointed to by women giving birth to a physical body. Do you understand that? What do you think the Bible means when it talks about how women will be saved through childbearing? What a wonderful thing that a woman, by definition of her biological identity, is constantly driving our attention to being born again by the Spirit of God and is, because of what God has made her body, is constantly imaging the fatherhood of the Apostle Paul and the blood and guts of being a spiritual father catching a child of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand this? And so as a woman is free to love the calling that God has given her, she affirms spiritual birth. She affirms the Apostle Paul. She affirms pastors and elders and Titus two women. And when we denigrate womanhood, and when we allow other people to do it, when we allow them to attack it and demean it, what we're doing is allowing woman's destiny from God to be trampled, and thereby every single thing of humility that God uses to sanctify us to be trampled. How do you think we can trample the humiliation of motherhood without trampling the humiliation of sanctification? You think we can choose one and not the other? You think there's a reason why America has no sanctification in its churches today? 
It's because we reject humility. And so, of course, we have to reject the humiliation of motherhood. And we read the Apostle Paul saying a woman will be saved through childbearing, and we think, oh, yeah, right. I've seen that. That's nasty. That must have been Mary. Mary giving birth, that's what he's talking about. Okay, got that one taken care of. And then the Apostle Paul comes along and he says, you're so superior. Oh, yeah, what did you have that you didn't get? And if it's a gift, how come you can brag in it? Oh, yeah, you're rich. Oh, yeah, you're full. Oh, yeah, you're kings. I wish you were kings. I mean, I wish I could be in the limo with you. Hey, I'm back here. You're without us. And then he says this. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now, what a perfect description of childbearing. (laughs) Did you read it? And you say, well, I haven't had a baby yet. And I say, oh, come on. You know what it is. What a beautiful description. Look at that. Did you read it? For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now, what's being referred to here is the situation in the ancient world where they had the Colosseum, for instance, and they had games. And there would be men who were given over to death, and the men would be brought in. If it was near the beginning of the day, they'd be brought in to fight with animals. And if they were lucky, they died first. Then they would fight men, and then towards the end of the day, they would be naked in there, fighting. And... Sooner or later, they would die. And it was for the entertainment of the people. And this is what the Apostle Paul is comparing giving spiritual birth to souls to. This is what he's comparing apostleship. This is what he's comparing pastoring, eldering, deaconing, Titus 2 women. What he's comparing spiritual mothers and fathers, but fathers... Two, is the spectacle of being given to death. In other words, it's been decreed. You will die. The only question is how soon. All right? That is what it's like for the Apostle Paul to lead this congregation of the Corinthians. That is what his whole life is. His whole life is being made a spectacle in front of the world and in front of heaven. Everybody sees what the Apostle Paul is. Everybody knows what the Apostle Paul is. And it's not pretty. It's a spectacle. He's a spectacle. (laughs) Couldn't he be more like Tim Keller? Couldn't he be more like, uh, I don't know, who, who do you like? Who do you wish you had as a pastor? You know? I mean, honestly, think about one that is not a spectacle. You know, couldn't couldn't the Apostle Paul have more dignity? Couldn't he, like, be a little bit more restrained? 
little bit more dignified, a little whiter, a little blacker, a little more educated. Did you see this last week? Tenth Prez has got their Scottish accent. Did you all see that? Flagship PCA Church announced that they have someone to, to take the place of the eminent man that left. And so, you know, they've always had to have a doctorate, but this time they did themselves one better. And I don't know the guy, I'm sure he's a wonderful guy, but it does not, it does not miss my notice that this is not just a doctorate, but a doctorate from over the pond, and he has a Scottish accent. That's the kind of man we want. You know, a British accent would suit us well. I mean, lads. You know, educated, dressing well, smoked cigar pipe, not cigarettes, drink single malt scotch, knows what a mashy niblick is. Does anybody here know what a mashy niblick is? Not one of you have read P.G. Woodhouse? There's mashy niblicks all over the place in P.G. Woodhouse. I have a mashy niblick. <laughs> you guys, listen. You don't want a preacher that has a mashy niblick. You don't want a preacher... If he's going to get his tobacco, let him get it honestly with a chew or a cigarette. Or not his tobacco, I meant the nicotine. And the scotch should be McClellan's. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that the men that give birth to you need to be humble. And they need to be a spectacle. They should not be men that cause you to feel proud. Because that's your problem. Your problem is you're too proud to be sanctified. And so God's your enemy. He resists the proud. And so what you need is a man who's at the back of the train who's going, what about me? What about me? I'm back here. That's what you need. You need a man who, when he comes into a room where you're giving birth, you're not embarrassed because you know that day after day after day, he's there when, when souls are given birth to. You know that he's a man of blood, a pain. That's what you need. Do you understand that? You need a shepherd who you know has been tempted in all ways like as you are. And with sin. You don't need any hairspray. You don't need any scotch. You don't need any cigars, any pipes. You don't need a British accent. And you certainly don't need a doctorate. The best thing for the church in America today would be for there to be an arbitrary rule made that not one more doctorate of any kind will ever preach from a pulpit again. Honestly. Doctorates in the pulpit. It's disgusting. 
And so at the end of the text, he goes through all this stuff. Boy, they're just, oh, they're up there. They're... And then he says, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We toil working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. When we become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. And listen, you know what that is? That's in, 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 in history. Often a city will come under a terrible attack of some sort. There will be a smallpox epidemic. There will be an attack from a foreign enemy. And what they'll do is they'll take a man who is viewed as the dregs of the city and they'll walk him around in the city so that he, so that he sort of, uh, <laughs> with karma, all right, so he sort of karma takes on the wickedness and evil and dirtiness and excrement of the city. And then he's killed. Do you understand this? That's what Paul's talking about. Paul is the one that's taking on all the sin and all the failure and all the grief and all the childbearing. And out of, out of it there blossoms red life that shall endlessly. And then we come to verse 14. And he's been, he's been unbelievably tense and in their face. I mean, they are fully embarrassed. Do you understand that? At this point, they're fully embarrassed. And then look at what he does. He says this. He says, I don't write these things to shame you. <laughs> Remember earlier I said, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with your objections. Because I said, every good father should shame you, right? And so right now you're saying, he says there, I don't write these things to shame you, but you're saying he's shaming them. And I go, he is shaming them. No, no, no. It says right there, verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you. I go, oh, come on. Is that how you live your life? No wonder you can't talk to your wife. <laughs> you know, you got to hear what they're saying, not what they're saying. And what the apostle Paul is saying is, I don't write these things to shame you. Why does he say that? He says that because he just shamed them. What he's saying is, I don't write these things to shame you. In other words, my goal isn't to shame you. I know I just shamed you, but I'm not writing to shame you. In other words, there's a goal beyond the shame, but there's no way that you can get to the goal beyond the shame until you're shamed. He can't work with you until you're completely embarrassed. And you realize that while you're up at the front, in the locomotive, feeling powerful, there's the Apostle Paul caught with his belt, dragged, bloody, naked, a spectacle to the world. And that's how you got there. All right? And he says, okay, okay, I'm not writing this to shame you. In other words, my goal isn't to shame you. A bad father's goal is to shame his children. You said, well, you just got done saying that a good father should shame his children. Yes, yes, yes. 
A good father has to shame his children on the way to someplace. He can never deal with his children until they're ashamed of who they are, of what they've done. Picture working under the tractor that cuts the grass. You're there with your dad. Your dad decides he's going to do what? He's going to grease the fittings underneath, right? And so your dad jacks the thing up, rolls it up on something, crawls down. It's spring. It's wet. He's underneath. He gets some grease on his face. He's got grease all over his hands because he didn't know how to put the grease cylinder in. He's, he's under there, and he's working. He's trying to find the Zerxers. Dirks or whatever those stupid things are, right? And his son is standing outside, right? Looking at his father underneath. And so his dad comes out and stands up and he's got sweat in his face. He's got mud on his backside. And he looks at his son. And what does he say? He says, well... (laughs) We certainly are clean, aren't we? And his son's like, ooh, I guess I should have been down there. And his dad says, don't worry, I don't say this to shame you. He just shamed him. And his dad says what? This is what his dad says to him. I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless, countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. Now, what is a tutor in Christ? A tutor in Christ is the only thing America has today. Every single church has a tutor in Christ. A tutor in Christ is one who somehow escapes the humiliation of giving birth. And therefore, the love, the affection, the trust, and the admonishment of a father. Do you see the difference between a tutor and a father? You see the comparison and the contrasting that Paul's doing here? We have many tutors in Christ. But you've only got one father. (laughs) You've only got one father. Sorry, this is who I am. Do you understand this? What's a father? A father is the one who's covered with your blood, covered with your sweat. A father is the one that you get sick and vomit, and he gets down on his knees and he cleans it up. And it's his glory to do that. What about a tutor? Well, a tutor says, call the custodian. (laughs) Vomit. Not my child. And the dad is like, you know, come, let me carry you to bed. Let me wear your vomit. It's pride. Do you get it? The Apostle Paul is saying, look, I'm not saying all these things to show that I'm better than you are. I don't want to shame you. I'm speaking to you as a dad. I'll wear your sin. I'll wear your failures. I'm not embarrassed. It's okay. This is what I do. And then he ends with this. Therefore. (laughs) Therefore. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Here it comes. Therefore. 
be. And this is the one thing you'll never get a preacher in America to say. The whole point of preachers in America today is to show you you can never be like them. <laughs> to show you how stupid you are when you try to be missional and gospel-centered. They want to keep you addicted to their superiority. You know what I want? What I want is for you to feel like you can pass me by and do a much, much, much better job. He says, therefore what? Be imitators of me. And that means they can imitate him. Now, does that mean he's perfect? No. What he's saying is imitate me. And what is he telling them to imitate? Here's a church divided by pride, divided by trying to be superior to each other. That's what they're doing. And he says, look at me. I'm bloody. I'm naked. I'm a spectacle to the world. Now imitate me. Imitate me. (laughs) Now listen, listen. This is wonderful news to you. It's wonderful news because that's the one thing you can do. You can be bloody, can't you, right? Can't you? I mean, don't you know how to be bloody? You can be a spectacle to the world, can't you? Come on, tell me the truth, can't you? I mean, you must be able to because that's the thing you're deathly afraid of all the time. I've got to work hard not to be a spectacle to the world, so I know you can be a spectacle to the world (laughs) because you're always running from it. So turn around, face it. Paul says, I exhort you, be imitators of me. What that means is it's our privilege to give it up and just be done with it and be like a woman in the delivery room with a baby coming out of her and those serving her. (laughs) And then guess what? We'll be sanctified. We'll become like Jesus. Because the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Isn't this precious? I mean, it's so easy to do. You know? Just give up your pride. Confess your sins one to another. Make a public spectacle of yourself. Huh? And guess what? Here's a church where other people are ahead of you in doing this. Now, how precious is that? Well, boy, I was helped by this text, eh? Right? You are too, right? This is what? The word of the Lord. It's eternally true. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Get dirty. Confess your sins. Fail in the right direction. Be proud of the elders and women that are spectacles that lead us. And as you do this, you're faithful to it. I might be willing to start. All right, let's pray.